Hi guys, this is Paul Gray, and I want to welcome you all to the show. Today we're joined with the famous author, Mr. Greg Zuckerman. Greg wrote several great bestsellers, including The Greatest Trade Ever, The Frackers, and his latest amazing book called The Man Who Solved the Market, which is about James Simons, who is the founder of arguably the greatest hedge fund in the world called Renaissance Technologies. Guys, if you haven't done so yet, I highly recommend you grab a copy immediately. It was one of the best finance books that I ever read. Greg, thank you so much for being with us here today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So, Greg, you know, Renaissance is such a highly secretive firm. How were you able to get inside and do this story? With a lot of difficulty, Paul. I uh, spent uh, a couple of years on this book, but for the first year or so, I wasn't sure I could pull it off. I um, talked to anyone and everyone connected to the firm, people who knew Jim Simons, went to school with him, grew up with him, um, people who uh, worked at the firm early on, but I still wasn't sure. So for about a year or so, I uh, struggled with whether I could pull this thing off. I had a check in advance from my publisher that I didn't cash because if I cashed it, I'd spend it. If I spent it, won't be able to give it back. So eventually I did decide to uh, do this thing. And even Simons ended up talking to me uh, after a while. We spent a good 10 plus hours together on the, uh, in person. So I think that's incredible. Thing that, yeah, I was very lucky and very privileged. And when you met him, did you meet him in his Long Island office? No, he's mostly in New York now. He has a great life because he has an office in New York where he runs his philanthropy out of and Rarely goes into the office, maybe once a month kind of thing. And yet he makes about a billion dollars a year, billion and a half. So it's not a bad life to make a billion and a half dollars without going to work. Sure. Sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. So in the beginning, Simons wasn't really willing to cooperate. And you were going around asking other people in the quant world, you know, about Jim Simons and Renaissance. And at first they were willing to help. But then they kind of backed off, right? Why was that? Uh, well, people in the quant world didn't really want to help. It was never 100% clear to me. I would have meetings set up with senior people in the quant world. And then the night before, I'd get these texts or emails. Oh, sorry, Greg, we have to cancel. Why? Well, Jim asked us not to talk to you. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure why that was so important. I said, you know, Jim Simons your, is your competitor. Why do you care what Jim thinks? Oh, no, it's Jim Simons. We can't offend Jim. Wow. So... Uh, it was hard, even people in the industry, uh, but, you know, even it, it took a while, but people did speak, I think partly because they realized this was a com- pretty remarkable story that a bunch of scientists and mathematicians uh, succeeded in creating uh, the greatest money-making firm uh, Wall Street has ever seen. They're up 66% a year since 1988. They continue to do well. This is the Medallion Fund, the key hedge fund. It's called a Medallion Fund. It's about $10 billion in size. And they use leverage, they grow it, but it's mostly um, capped. And it's also only for employees and people in the firm. So it's a remarkable thing that they've done, these outsiders who conquered the market. So I think eventually people realize that uh, it's a story that's, that needs to be told. I was going to tell it anyway. So better to work with me than, than to not talk to me. Right. And somewhat be influential in the narrative. So that, that was a good exactly. idea on this part. I, I think that's why it's, I'm never 100 percent sure the motivations why people talk to me at the Wall Street Journal or, or my books. I'm appreciative and, and thankful that they do. But um, everyone has their own reasons, I think. Sure. And can you walk us through who Jim Simons was before Renaissance? 
Sure. So Jim Simons, uh, I believe it would be worthy of a book, even if he never invested uh, in the market at all. He's a mathematician. He goes down as one of the most important geometers of the past 50, 100 years. I'll take a step back and just tell you about his life a little bit. He uh, grew up in, uh, in Boston. He uh, did MIT in three years, had a love of math, passion for mathematics from an early age. You know, family members discouraged him from pursuing it. They didn't think you could make much right. money uh, in math. The irony being he's worth $23 billion today. But uh, that's fast forwarding. Um, he got a PhD at Berkeley, came back and taught at MIT and at Harvard. And then he left to uh, break code. It's a really fascinating period, I believe, Incredible. in his life where he um, joined a group in Princeton that was going up against the Russians in the Cold War, the USSR. And yeah, there he learns how to build algorithms and to, uh, to develop and to run a secretive organization because they worked with the government. They, they couldn't share what they were doing with outsiders. Sure. And, but inside, they were very collegial and they worked together. And that's kind of what happens later on. It happened later on at Renaissance. But um, he did that for a while. He got fired from that job. I tell that story uh, in the book as to, as to why. There was some politics involved. He opposed the Vietnam War. And it wasn't politically savvy. Move on his part. And then he left to run the uh, math department at SUNY, uh, Stu uh, Stony Brook. And he did a really interesting job there in, in terms of hiring, recruiting, uh, persuading Ivy League and other professors to join and develop some other skills, not building algorithms, but how to hire people, how to get people to join an organization that's unproven. And uh, he led that for a while. Then he quit in uh, 1988 to trade, to develop this trading firm, uh, which eventually became Renaissance Technology. So he was always like a leader. And assembling teams. He did so in Stony Brook. He did so with the IDA. I think that's true. And that's one of his skills. People say to me, well, you know, why? How did Jim Simons do it? What's the secret sauce? And I go through in the book some things that they do differently uh, than others. Um, but a lot of it is just his ability to hire and to recruit and to motivate um, his, his employees. And I think he does it in a very different way. And as you say, he, he's a great manager. He's a great leader. And I think that's one of the um, skills that I think not every investor has and not every quant has, certainly. Right. And, and these are rather unique people, very strong minded, very talented. So you can imagine how hard it was managing that team. So that's that's pretty interesting. Um, you know, besides that, what else made Renaissance so special? Um, like what kind of talent were they looking for? Yeah, they um, are very unique and, and remain uh, very unique in that they just hire mathematicians and scientists. They don't hire anybody who spent time at Wall Street, went to get an MBA, has a finance background. They don't really believe in that. It's not that they're opposed to those with some finance background, but what they're trying to do is develop a mathematical model to trade. And it's very different from every other approach that that other investors have, or at least until recently. Now everyone's trying to be quantitative, uh, be a quant. Right. But back then it was sort of two approaches that were popular. It was sort of the Warren Buffett approach. You talk to management, you look at financial statements, you use your intuition and research and judgment. And the other was sort of the random walk approach. Well, you can't really time markets. You don't know when the next piece of news will be, so don't even try. Uh, what you could look at, what, what Jim Simons and his colleagues did is a little bit akin to technical analysis, where they're looking for patterns that may not be readily apparent to, to most. Um, 
and they're doing it on a much more sophisticated uh, way. They're not doing it sort of hocus pocus like a lot of uh, other technical analysis, but that's a good way to understand what they're doing. They're looking for order uh, where others see kind of chaos, and that's what scientists are trained to do. And that's what that's another reason why he hires the scientists and mathematicians. And but he also does differently than others. A lot of people get, like I said earlier, are trying to be quants today, but um, and they're trying to hire PhDs. And they do have a lot of PhDs at Renaissance, about uh, 95 or so out of their 320 odd employees. But what they do is they hire groundbreaking mathematicians and scientists, people right. who are clean, people who've um, done academic work that really is groundbreaking, as opposed to, again, most of Wall Street, there are a lot of PhDs, but they're not people who ran departments at Stanford kind of thing. And they kind of revolutionized big data, right, before it was like a household thing. How did they do so? Where were they getting that data from? Yeah, it's a good point that, um, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book. It's not just that these guys have the greatest track record in history. It's that they are pioneers when it comes to predictive algorithms. They were doing the kind of things that, you know, Facebook and Amazon do today. They were doing it back in the late 80s. And as you say, big data, they were, that was Jim Simons' thesis, that if he collected more data than everybody else, they'd be more successful. But it really took a guy named Sandor Strauss, who worked there early on, who said, well, yeah, we've got a lot of data here. We're going to keep buying more of it, but we need to make sure it's accurate data. We need to clean the data, which is what people do today regularly. But back then, no one was talking about cleaning data, making sure it's, it's accurate. And he did the pain, he embraced the uh, painstaking task of going through the numbers and making sure the data, there weren't any glitches and mistakes. Um, so they were buying it up early on. They've got today data that other people don't have, stuff that goes back to like the 1700s and wow. 1800s. And it's, it provides an advantage, not as much of an advantage today as a few years ago, but it still provides an advantage. So with that being said, are they concerned at all with Facebook or Google maybe starting their own hedge fund and competing with them? Because they also have a lot of data as well. Um, they're not only because I've heard those kind of organizations examine the idea of starting an investment unit, but I think they've dismissed it. They moved on from it. Unless I've heard incorrectly, I think they were concerned with issues of insider trading and how do you uh, silo those kind of trading organizations and make it. Uh, make them distinct from the other parts of organizations. So um, they would be hypothetically concerned about those kind of firms. That's who they see as their competitors for talent. They see their competitors for talent being Facebook and the networks of the world as opposed to, to trading firms. But I, I do want to make the point that they just or they organize themselves in a very different way than the than most quants on the firm, on the street in, in the finance business and just most quants uh, in, in investment firms generally in that they're very collegial and very open internally. Remember going back to that organization that Jim Simons learned about, the, the IDA it was called in Princeton that was working on code breaking. That's what they were like. So anybody today at Renaissance can see the code and it's 10 million wow. plus lines of C++ uh, code. Anybody can Aren't they worried that somebody could walk out with the code? They are to some extent worried. And there've been a couple examples I write about in the book and drama has resulted, but their argument is there's more upside than downside and that everybody can see what everybody's working on. People make presentations literally in front of 70, 80 people. They work together. If someone gets frustrated or a group of people get frustrated on one project and another can, can see what they're doing and, and pick it up, uh, pick up a baton and run with it. They also make people sign 30-page NDAs uh, to try That's to pre prevent, prevent people from walking out the door with a code. And 
It's also the case that because they hire from academia, mostly or largely, they, um, they, they don't worry that these people are going to leave and go to another hedge fund. They don't really know who the hedge funds are. They can find out, but that's just not in their uh, DNA. When they leave Renaissance, they usually go back to academia or they go to nonprofits and such. Andrew, so it, work, it works out well for them. So they're really not incentivized by money. Okay. Uh, um, when, when, they, when they get there, that's not the key reason. But once they've joined, money changes everybody and everything. That's kind of the second section of my book. I write about how they make the money mm -hmm. and then what they do with the money. So I don't want to suggest that these people don't care about money. I don't think it's, it's their primary motivation when they join the firm. It's mostly curiosity and challenge. They like puzzles. But then, you know, the money does corrupt or at least affect people's lives. Got it. Okay. Um, you know, going back to way, the way um, James Simons was putting together the fund, in the mid to late 80s, they were rather successful. They were managing about $800 million. But why was Jim Simons so fixated on equities? What was so special about equities? So Jim Simons is a fascinating individual in that he's an academic. He's a mathematician. He's a quant. Uh, but he's also not like most others. He's very outgoing. He's funny. He smokes like a chimney. <laughs> Being in his presence is like the last guy in our society who makes you breathe in all that smoke. He drinks. <laughs> he, he, likes to, he likes his alcohol. Uh, he's funny, mischievous. And he also is, again, outgoing. Um, but he also is unabashed in his love of money. So he's an mm. academic who's not embarrassed to say he wanted to get really wealthy. And to your question, he knew he couldn't get be a billionaire without his firm um, mastering the world of equities. So around 1996 or so, they were making good money in, in bond futures and commodities and currencies, but they couldn't figure out equities. And to many of the firm, that was fine. All right, so we'll get wealthy and we won't be able to make much money in the equity world. That's fine. The, the, the problem with, with not making um, money in the equity world is that you can't get that big. Um, there sure. are a lot of these markets, commodity markets, currency markets that are kind of limited. So the firm realized it couldn't get that big unless it could solve equities. And again, to a lot of people at the firm, that was fine. But Jim Simon said, no, I want to get really, really rich. And the only way to get really wealthy is to solve equities. And finally, in the mid and in, in late 90s, they did. And they brought in Bob Mercer and Peter Brown, who were very influential in that portfolio, right? Right. I don't think Simons could have figured out equities without these individuals. Um, Simons was great at recruiting and hiring, but he's an architect more than anything. Some people who've read my book say, well, yeah, I like the story, Greg, but Jim Simons isn't the man who solved the market. It's really his group of people that he hired. And I would agree with that. It's a little bit like uh, you know, Steve Jobs didn't build uh, the, the Apple iPhone and other products. He created the environment and the architecture, and that's what Jim Simons did. And as you suggest, it was really these programmers, computer programmers from IBM, Robert Mercer, Peter Brown, David Magerman, and they struggled at first. There's a lot of drama I write about in the book, but mm -hmm. they finally figured out how to make a lot of money in equities. And the way they figure it out is because somebody by the name of David Magerman comes in, and he's able to fix a fluke in the data. What was that about? Yeah, uh, you would think these guys are among the uh, smartest individuals in the, in the world and they wouldn't have kind of glitches and fat finger type experiences, but they do. And that's kind of in some ways it's humanizing that 
even they can make dumb mistakes. So basically, they had a number in their system that wasn't updating. It was a number for the S&P 500. And it was a way that they hedged their risk. And um, I get into it in the book. But bottom line is, they thought it was a number that was uh, updating, and it wasn't. They had made a mistake in their programming. And it was Robert Mercer who made the mistake, who's among the greatest computer programmers of his generation. Wow. And Magerman who had screwed up time and time again within the firm and everyone was down on him and he was close to getting fired. He's the one that found it. And he kind of went to his boss and said, uh, Robert, I think, or Bob, I think you messed up here and I think this number should be updating. And to his credit, Mercer was like, yeah, you know, I think you may be right here. And had Magerman not found that glitch in the system, I don't know, uh, maybe it would have taken them longer. Maybe they would never have figured out equities. Maybe there would be... Uh, no Renaissance Technologies, but he did. And so there's something uh, reassuring, I think, in that even these guys kind of mess up sometimes. Interesting. And it's kind of ironic. Later in your book, you see how it plays out between Mercer and Magerman to see how that relationship yeah. kind of unfolded. Um, right. So after all this happened, they became a money printing machine, right? Now, would you say they operate somewhat in a black box model? Yeah, people say black box when it comes to quant. Um, they would counter, and people in the quant world would say everybody's a black box. You know, a traditional, um, um, let's say Warren Buffett or David Einhorn. I don't know, are their brains any clearer why they're going to buy something, why they're not going to buy something? We all kind of wait to see what Warren Buffett's going to do in the post-corona crisis period, <laughs> what he's going to buy. We all speculate, but he's sort of a black box. We're not sure what he's going to do. Um you could make the argument that these preset algorithms that quants like Jim Simons and Cliff Asmus use are less of a black box because you, at least they know um, what's, what it's going to do and, and why. They're not 100% sure. There's a lot of machine learning involved too, so that makes it kind of black boxy. So yeah, wow. to the extent that you can't summarize why they're doing what they're doing makes it a little bit of a black box. But uh, again, others maybe are, are also, uh, it's unclear why they're doing what they're doing. Got it. And like other quant funds, do they use any high frequency trading or co-location? No. So that's a, a misunderstanding about Renaissance that they're high speed, but they're not that fast. Their speed, it's truly, it's truly called, I call it a medium frequency firm in that the holding period is short term, but it's not super short term. It's like seasons or seconds to seasons is what they call it internally, a few days on average, I guess, when it comes wow. to equities anyway. Uh, and when it comes to medallion funds itself. So, yeah, they're not about being the fastest. They, they will make rapid-fire trades, but that's sort of like getting into a position or getting out of a position. It's not in and out, trying to get in right before you and I trade. Got it. Okay. And how are they better than other quant funds? I mean, we spoke about their culture, but is there anything that you know about their special sauce or their secret sauce, rather? I'm sure everybody has asked you since you wrote this book. Yeah. And that's sort of the, um, the Amazon reviews have been quite good, but the criticism is, well, yeah, I like the story, Greg, but I can't make money on my own. I can't become a billionaire. <laughs> there's no formula. And I don't think there's any secret formula. And people there internally... I struggle with that question because, frankly, people internally struggle with that question. They're not entirely sure why they're so much better than everybody else, and I'm not either. I can give you some a thesis or two, and in my book, I think I lay out about, I don't know, 20 or 25 things they do better than everybody else. Right. They hire better. They have better talent. They're managed better. People work together. I go on and on. They, they 
they they've always had a real emphasis on impact of their trading on the market at an early stage. Do others do that too? Yeah, but Renaissance is really good at it. I can go on and on, but all that doesn't really fully explain it all. I think what it does is explain to some extent why they've got this um, steady stream of profits and then what they do with that, but it's not crazy profits. And then what they do with that is leverage it up. And because it's so steady, right. every kind of market, including in uh, 2020, they've done nicely, the medallion fund itself, they can go to Wall Street and get good leverage at cheap price. So that all helps explain it all. But um, there are a lot of little things they do better than everybody else. And hopefully I explain them in the book. Got it. Are they at all concerned based on the people that you spoke with that, you know, computational power is getting stronger and also cheaper at the same time? Data is becoming more readily available. Are they worried that Two Sigma PDT partners or D Shaw might catch up to them? There's some concern. Those are good points uh, of yours. There, there's some concern, and um, it doesn't preclude other people from doing really well. I don't think it's a zero sum. PDT has done great over the years, and they are a similar kind of firm. They're not as big. They haven't made as much money. They're not as successful, but the returns are quite are pretty amazing at PDT too. And they both sort of, on the equity side anyway, um, have evolved from Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley had this unit, and I write about it in the book, that could have been the best ever, but they gave up on it too quickly. And some of those sure. people eventually- With Peter Muller. Exactly. So, and, and others, um, um, Robert Fry, who went on to Renaissance, and some of that kind of made its way to Renaissance, and some of it made its way to PDT, as you say. So uh, that's another reason why PDT has done really well. D Shaw is different. They've done well, but not nearly as well. Two Sigma is quite good. They've got an internal fund that is a little bit like Medallion that's only available to internal people. And I don't think it's the same returns as Medallion, but it's 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 also a great return, great returns. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, in my other favorite book that you wrote with um, John Paulson, where you're covering his great trade back in the Great Recession, you know, are there any similarities that you see between these really successful hedge fund managers? Well, in some ways, they're very different ones, very quantitative. And um, Paulson did see the data and was convinced by the data in terms of how expensive the housing market had become. But it was a lot of it more instinct and intuition to some extent. Um, I think they're both what they have in common is this self-confidence to ignore the experts. So the experts all said, oh, housing nationally could never collapse, maybe some local areas but not the entire housing market and time and, and i'm sorry paulson even though he was a merger arb he kind of ignored the consensus the the common wisdom and said hey i'm gonna bet that the entire housing market collapses and similarly simon's there were periods i write about in my book where people were like yeah i don't get your approach i don't get this machine the learning i don't get computer algorithms and this black box as you said earlier so Simon didn't care what people thought. He proceeded. He had this belief in himself. So I, I find that often in a lot of my books, and it's a little bit of a self-selected group, but the frackers too. You know, the convention, conventional wisdom was that the United States had run out of oil and gas, and yet you should be drilling, you know, offshore in Africa and Asia, but not in Texas and North Dakota. And the people I wrote about ignored that conventional wisdom. So that is something in common with all the characters I write about in my book. Got it. Okay. Greg, you know, I can't thank you enough for coming on and speaking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. 
for all those that are listening and want to get in touch with you, or maybe if they have your next big story that you could cover and make a successful book, how can they reach out to you? Sure. And I love uh, constructive criticism, people that um, have criticisms or compliments, either one, I, I embrace them both. Um, so I'm at the Wall Street Journal. I'm easy to find there, gregory.zuckerman at wsj.com, or I'm on LinkedIn, or I'm on Twitter, and I love interacting with people as well. And um, this was a great interview. You did a really nice job. Good for you. I'm looking forward to following your career as well. You're a young man. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Sure. Good Have luck. Have a good day. Stay in touch.